morning, everybody. Yes, it's a Sunday morning and you're here. And I know it's 11, it means it's almost noon, but um, it still feels like the morning has much to go before we all wake up. But um, we're looking forward to Elliot's presentation. Uh, it's the last in a series of four lectures that we had um, you know, for the festival. And we wanted to give uh, spe special attention to these lectures um, by actually not having anything else compete with them. We wanted everybody possible to come and to listen and, and to, uh, to think deeply about what was being presented. And so we had Gunawan Mohammed, we had Harry Aveling, we've had uh, Rebecca uh, Carl uh, do the lectures, and Elliot is the last of our lectures for the festival. Now, I'm probably the last person to be able to talk about questions of form and style uh, that are, I think, essential to, to the essay. And for us who, who love the English language, um, who grew up on reading essays, uh, it is an extraordinarily challenging form. And I, um, I am always in awe, more than novelists, more than sh short stories. I guess short stories are up there. Um, uh, the essay is an extraordinarily difficult form to uh, master and to be in command of. And I think um, Eliot, I uh, understand from reputation, is a master of style and the essay. And what I'm hoping to learn this morning is uh, it, it, the kind of ideas behind uh, Eliot's work. So um, I'm gonna keep this very short. I'm sure try not to misrepresent what you're gonna be saying the rest of the morning, but okay. Um, so uh, I'm gonna hand it over to Eliot now uh, and uh, for your kind attention. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for coming. Let me get this mic set. I feel like I won the Iron Throne up here. Um, uh, I, I, I don't teach, so I have no experience giving lectures. So please treat this more like karaoke than a concert. I've been asked to talk about world literature, the 20th century, and the 21st. So that should take about 10 minutes. Even worse, I want to start in the 18th century, for it seems to me that the first thing that should be said is that the concept of world literature begins not as is commonly thought as the cultural byproduct of empire building, though colonialism ultimately would also set up within its terrible history some channels of communication that were actually fruitful. Rather, it begins as a response to a national inferiority complex. German intellectuals at the end of the 18th century, feeling that their language lacked the literary richness of French or English or Spanish or Italian, decided that this very lack of history, of allusions and resonances embedded in the language, made it the ideal, almost transparent language for translation. German could become a kind of central station for the best of the literature of the world, traveling into German and then out into the other languages. And where the other European languages had previously only translated Latin or classical Greek or each other, the Germans looked first to the unexplored territories of Arabic, Persian, and Sanskrit. The unexplored territories of their literatures, it must be emphasized, 
sorry, the unexplored literature, the unexplored territories of their literatures, it must be emphasized. The Germans themselves were barely a nation and had no economic interest in those countries. And as is often the case, trans translation revitalized, in this case, vitalized their own literature, creating the great age of German romanticism. A similar thing happened with American poetry in the first decades of the 20th century. Feeling provincial, feeling that their national poetry had no history, the great exceptions Emily Dickinson was as yet undiscovered and Walt Whitman was seen, however incorrectly, as too regional and too rhetorical. Many American writers moved to Europe and believed that the reading and translation of, far, of various foreign poetries were the path to their own poetry, both as a way to discover new forms of writing and to insert themselves onto the world stage. This turned out to be completely true. The first book of modern poetry in English was a translation of Chinese classical poetry, Ezra Pound's Café, and Chinese classical poetry, both understood and misunderstood, was to remain an essential influence on nearly all the American poets of the 20th century, as curiously it was not in Britain or in other Western languages. Simultaneously, the poets were reading and translating the unrestored fragments of classical Greek, the medieval Provencal troubadours, Dante and Cavalcante from the Italian, Anglo-Saxon, as well as their European contemporaries. Moreover, they were reading through their own English language tradition, rescuing poets who had been completely forgotten, it seems incredible now, such as John Donne and the metaphysicals, rereading the Elizabethans and so on. The result, once again, was a great age, American modernism. Literature always moves in its own, sometimes mysterious, underground channels. Pound's reading, or invention, as T.S. Eliot called it, of Chinese poetry, led him to the creation of a new movement in the proliferation of movements at the beginning of the century, imagism, which emphasized the stripping away of 19th century poetic rhetoric in favor of precision, concision, concreteness. His famous manifesto, A Few Don'ts for an Imagiste, was avidly read in Poetry Magazine by a young Chinese student, Hu Xie, who happened to be studying in the US. Hu Xie went on to write his own nearly identical manifesto, which would become the rallying cry of a new literature for the new China, one stream in the nationalistic and anti-imperial May 4th movement of 1919. In other words, Hu Xie found in America what Ezra Pound had found in China. This launched a movement of Chinese modernist poetry in the 1920s and 30s, which was in turn nourished by translation, mainly from the French and Spanish. Amazingly, the first translations of Garcia Lorca into any language were done in Chinese by the poet Dai Wang Shu. After the revolution in 1949, these modernists were no longer permitted to publish their own poems, but their translations of European poets with the proper political credentials could continue to circulate, 
even though such surrealist poets as Lorca, Eluard, or Aragon were hardly writing in the mandated social realist mode. In the late 1970s, after the Cultural Revolution, a group of young poets centered around the Samistak magazine Jintian, today, a group misleadingly known in the West as the Misty Poets, though obscure would be a less faithful and more accurate translation, invented their own modernist, anti-social realist, subjective and impressionistic poetry, completely unaware of the banned Chinese poets who had preceded them, but under the influence of the translations those same poets had written. Their poems became the expressions of the new youth consciousness for the democracy wall movement in 1979 and 10 years later in Tiananmen Square, much like rock and roll was to the Western youth movements of the 1960s. Literature moves through underground channels. Perhaps the best example is that today in the US, many classes in creative writing and poetry require their students to write a poem in a Malaysian form, the pantoon, called pantoum in English. Victor Hugo introduced it into French poetry in 1829, having found it in the writings of an Asian scholar named Ernest Fouinet, and it was then picked up by Baudelaire and Le Comte de Lille and other Parnassians, and from there traveled to English and the rather drippy fin de siècle poets whom Pound hated, such as Austin Dobson. It was revived by John Ashbery in the 1950s and then spread to countless other American poets. Literature moves through its own channels, and only occasionally are those channels caused by or are a microcosm of the larger channels of imperialism or political conquest, as has now become a cliché. The British interest in Indian literature and the discovery of Sanskrit and the family of Indo-European languages indeed begins with William Jones, an official of the East India Company. But by the 19th century, for example, at the height of the British Empire, all the professors of Sanskrit in England were German. The haiku mania that swept the European languages in the 1910s and 20s and was as important to their poetries as classical Chinese was to American poetry, owes something to the opening of trade at the end of the 19th century and the subsequent rage for all things Japanese, but is not the result of Western conquest. Japan was no colony. To take one example, the haiku is introduced into Spanish by a Mexican, Jose Juan Tablada, who lived in Japan for many years and then wrote haiku not about Japanese che uh, cherry blossoms, but, ver but about very Mexican flora and fauna. The result, and what world literature ultimately means, is that if you or I write a haiku today, we are not only following a long Japanese tradition, but also a modern tradition that includes Tablada and Garcia Lorca and various French poets and pounds in a station of the metro and countless others outside of Japan. The guiding spirit of poems about the American wilderness by Kenneth Rexroth or Gary Snyder is not only an American, Thoreau at Walden Pond, but Levi and others up in the mountains in the Tang Dynasty. Latin America is another case in point. During the century of overt American imperialism, 
more or less from the 1850s to the 1950s, there was almost no Latin American literature published in the US. This only began around 1960 after the Cuban Revolution when American imperialism became much more covert. Conversely, with a few exceptions, Latin American writers until recent decades turned to France and not their colonizer Spain for inspiration. And to continue this ping pong game, the Nobel Prize winning Guatemalan novelist Miguel Angel Asturias, known for his folkloric invocations of his country's indigenous past and present, first began thinking about that reality in Paris after reading the work of French ethnologists and archaeologists. Octavio Paz's deep interest in Mexico's pre-Columbian past was similarly spurred on in Paris by his encounters with the Surrealists. And in Paris, too, was where the founders of the Negritude movement, Aimé César and Leopold Sédar Senghor, discovered the work of the German Leo Frobenius, who spent 30 years roaming Africa amassing notes on hundreds of thousands of file cards, who published 12 volumes of, of African folk tales, and among many other things, an enormous cultural atlas that compared the artworks and everyday objects of scores of cultures, and who believed long before Leakey that humanity had originated in Africa, and that there was in deep history what he called a Eurafric civilization. Senghor wrote, no one did more than Frobenius to reveal Africa to the world and the Africans to themselves. On another front, Apollinaire took Picasso and Matisse to see Frobenius's collection of African masks, which transformed their work. And much of Frobenius's thoughts on culture filter into Pound's writings. In Latin America, the great exceptions of its general indifference to US literature were primarily Eliot's The Wasteland, which was a worldwide phenomena. And curiously, a minor novel by William Faulkner, The Wild Palms, which was translated by Borges. Faulkner was decisive for, among many others, Garcia Marquez, whose 100 Years of Solitude, in turn, is surely the most influential novel of the second half of the 20th century though it's doubtful that it's a product of Colombian hegemony. In the 1960s, the translations of Latin American poetry by Neruda, Paz, Vallejo, Parra, and others were enormously important in US poetry. Then, beginning in the 1990s, there was a generation of Latin American poets enamored with the US poets who had begun in the 1960s under the influence of the Latin American poets. All of these histories I've been repeating are like the Sufi parable, the man who travels for years in search of a treasure, only to discover that the treasure was buried under a tree in his backyard all along. Literature travels far to discover what is closest. The 20th century was undoubtedly the age of American imperialism, but was it also actually the age of American cultural hegemony? Until fairly recently, the most popular movies in the world came not from Hollywood, but from Bollywood and Hong Kong. The first truly international movie star was Bruce Lee. The most popular television shows were Brazilian and Mexican telenovelas. 
Chinese friends my age are experts on Mexican movies from the 1940s. In the 50s and 60s, before the Cultural Revolution, Soviet and, of course, Hollywood movies were banned, and the Mexican movies were cheap to import. And during the Cultural Revolution, they watched Albanian movies. And so it goes. Hegemony, especially as used in academia, is an easy catch-all, but once one moves out of politics and economics, it begins to lose meaning. Culture has always been far more complex. The case of Faulkner's otherwise forgotten novel, Wild Palms, in Latin America is not unusual. Writers or works that are little appreciated in their own countries often have great success or influence abroad. They are not lost in translation, as that tiresome cliche goes, but better. Translation theorists like to attribute this to political agendas or the reinforcement of stereotypes. Southeast Asian novels must have lots of coconuts. But this seems to me only occasionally true. For example, during the Cold War, the West was more excited to read Solzhenitsyn's accounts of the Gulag than they would have been to read a Soviet novel extolling boilerplate production. It is more often the case that the writer or the work, which may be unremarkable in its original language, nevertheless brings something to the literature of the translation language which it never had before, and which, of course, in the end, is the reason why books are translated at all. They tell us something we don't know and which lead us to discover ourselves. Conversely, there are also works that are indeed lost in translation, not because of the supposed impossibility of bringing literature from one language to another, but because what was radical or transformative in one national literature, let's say the first poet to write in so-called free verse, may be all too familiar in another national literature or in the context of what is already known about the literatures of the world. World literature is neither monolithic nor hegemonic. It has no Coca-Cola, which bizarrely, considering we don't even know what it is made from, was the extraordinary invention of a food that appealed to the taste of absolutely every culture on Earth. World literature is a complex network of certain works that travel to certain cultures at certain times. Much of it is not the result of some larger agenda, but of pure chance. A writer discovers a book in a used bookstore, one writer happens to meet another abroad, and so on. Some of these books and writers become enormously popular in many places or in only a few places. Some never catch on. Some wax and wane in popularity. Yesterday's phenomena becomes today's footnote to the history of literature, which, after all, is, is as it should be. There is no fixed canon. Tastes change as cultures change. Today's masterpiece was very often forgotten or unrecognized for long periods of time. In the US alone, that would include such books as Moby Dick, Henry James's Portrait of a Lady, and The Great Gatsby. World literature is usually considered as the complex of literatures nourishing each other across national boundaries. But it is also very much the story of a dominant language and literature revitalized by the other languages and literatures within that country, 
from what is usually called the margins to the center, from the outside in. The first anthology of poetry anywhere in the world was the Chinese Shi Jing, the Book of Songs or the Book of Odes, legendarily compiled by Confucius around 500 BCE. This was a collection consisting almost entirely of folk songs, reputedly collected so that the emperor could find out what the people were thinking. Until modern times, its influence on Chinese literary poetry has been immeasurable, and expertise in it was even required for bureaucrats to pass the official state exams for advancement. Similarly, throughout Chinese history, and particularly in the Tang Dynasty, the greatest age of Chinese poetry, the new ways of writing poetry, the new forms, usually came from folk songs. As I understand it, this was also the case in Malaysia with the Pantun and other forms moving from the oral to written literature. And going back again to German Romanticism, part of its project was not only discovering the literatures of remote places, but also a literature that had never been written down and that was flourishing at home. Not only folk songs, but the stories, later mis mislabeled fairy tales, that were assiduous, assiduously collected and transcribed by the Brothers Grimm. Garcia Marquez used to say, though it wasn't completely true, that a hundred years of solitude was just the stories his grandmother told him. The title of this talk, since I was asked to give a title before I had written a word, is New Trade Roots of the Word. And in part, it is precisely here, among languages within a nation, and from oral to written, where there are some extremely interesting new developments. Throughout modernism, there have been literary writers, and I use literary merely as a shorthand for writers who write it down and publish it. There have been literary writers who have been inspired by oral traditions, but their knowledge of these traditions, unless they grew up with them at home, has come almost entirely from the work of ethnographers. The European Dadaists and Surrealists are obvious examples, and in the US in the 1960s, there was a movement known as Ethnopoetics, which transformed literal anthropological translations into American avant-gardist poems, often with very little knowledge of their context culturally or within their original poetics. But the impulse in all these cases was worthy, an opening up of the possibilities of what poetry could be. What is new in various parts of the world is that speakers of indigenous languages are receiving university educations in the dominant language of their nation and studying the literatures of the world. Then, rather than writing in the dominant language, as was previously the case, they are choosing to write in their original language. The result is a fascinating conjunction of oral traditions with modernism. In Mexico, the country I know best, which has dozens of indigenous languages spoken by millions, there is already an impressive network of poets and fiction writers writing in these Native American languages, along with literary magazines and publishers and radio programs. Various writers have already achieved both national and international reputation. It's a new hybrid form. Instead of Picasso inspired by Dogon Mass, a Dogon mask maker is inspired by Picasso. 
Of course, the problem of negotiating between one's local audience and a much larger audience is a circular question not limited to writers coming out of an oral tradition. How much do you explain? Do you describe a local food or just use the name for it? I was interested to read just before coming here Kula Grassi's book, Tell Me Kanyalang, translated by festival co-director Pauline Fan, which incorporates various languages, imagery, and practices from Grassi's home in Sarawak, and Fan's decision to leave many words and phrases from the indigenous languages untranslated but annotated, recreating what the reading experience would be for someone who only knows Malay. It is fascinating that Grassi, and there may well be others, I just happen to have read his book, that Grassi in Malaysia is mirroring, is mirroring what is also the case in Mexico and various parts of Latin America today. That kind of connection seems to me to be part of what may be the, a future map of world literature. Since the 18th century, most of the trade routes of the word have been east-west or north-south. That is, the east or the south informing the west, and the west informing the east and the south. But we are now, with globalized communication and mass migration, as I need hardly repeat, moving into a far more decentralized world, one where the European countries and the United States will be, and to some extent already are, merely nations among nations, their capitals no longer the cultural capitals. India is an interesting example. Until very recently, almost all the writers in English, Arundhati Roy was a notable exception, lived in the West. But there is a new generation of writers who are staying in India, and there is now an active literary scene of magazines and publishers, mainly in Delhi, but also in Calcutta, Bombay, Bangalore. It's also telling that these younger writers are discovering and translating the important literary writers who write in the various regional languages. It was not so long ago that Salman Rushdie scandalously and ignorantly declared that the only good writing in India was written in English. The point is that for, say, the young Malaysian writers in English at this festival, their potential network of writers, readers, and publishers is or will be as vital in Delhi as it is in London or New York, and vice versa the network of young Indian writers will extend to Kuala Lumpur. With it comes an understanding of what is happening to English, which is a mirror of what is happening in the world. Globalization has also given rise to ardent nationalism and regionalism, sometimes for the good culturally, but in most cases for the bad politically. With English, on the one hand, there is the monolithic lingua franca, which we might call airport English or Starbucks English. But on the other hand, it is evolving into many languages, similar to the way Latin turned into the various Romance languages. Someone from Jamaica and someone from Wales and someone from India would hardly be able to understand one another in conversation. Moreover, unlike Arabic, which has a universal classical written language and many generally mutually incomprehensible national spoken variations. What is new is that the many writers are choosing to write, not in universal English, but in their regional versions. It seems to me perfectly obvious that, say, a Malaysian writer has as much, 
not necessarily more than, but as much, to say and to learn from writers elsewhere in Asia or in Africa or in Latin America as she or he does from writers in the West. The whole history of literature is the story of new ways of writing, new ways of telling stories, and new forms of poetry coming from abroad, coming from new people, the immigrants writing in the new language, and coming from the so-called margins of any given society. The obstacle in the South and parts of the East, of course, has always been a post-colonial mentality and the sense of being somehow second class. I come from supposedly the richest and most powerful nation on earth, but its riches are almost entirely concentrated at the top of the pyramid. To take one example, according to the UN statistics on infant mortality, ranked from best to worst, Malaysia is number 40, but the US, where they say the streets are paved with gold, is number 38. In the US, over 40 million people live in poverty, and another 100 million live in what is called near poverty, together equaling one third of the country. And as for power, the current administration in the United States has proven how shallow and now eroding that power and influence have become. To put it another way, most Americans are themselves second-class citizens of the world, not at all that dissimilar to those of post-colonial countries. The European and later the American centrality in the world was, after all, a phenomenon of a few centuries. Before the Industrial Revolution, the two largest economies in the world were China and India. That centrality is waning and waning rapidly, but consciousness moves slowly until it has a jolt, a jolt that often comes from writers who have always been at the vanguard of the radical changes in how we see the world. Contrary to Auden's famous dictum, poetry does indeed make things happen though in oblique and intangible ways. Or as William Carlos Williams said, a new line is a new mind. It is too facile to proclaim the sinking of the West or the North and the rising of the East or the South. Rather, one needs to imagine a culturally multi-directional world, one that will exist, that already exists, within the dire unitary and potentially unifying planetary consequences of climate change. One of the greatest American poems oddly celebrates the simultaneous opening of the Suez Canal and the completion of the American Transcontinental Railway in 1869, Walt Whitman's Passage to India. It is a physical passage to India, but as Whitman writes, more than a passage to India. The trade routes of the word are indeed changing, and it's unpredictable where they'll lead. But as Whitman writes, hoist instantly the anchor, shake out every sail, and steer for the deep waters only. Oh, 
what a wonderfully rich um, uh, presentation that was. Thank you so much, Elliot. Um, uh, so much food for thought, um, much of which I will try to reduce to uh, tweets uh, the rest of the afternoon. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> good luck to me. Much um, better as a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've already written down a few. So everything uh, in the world, uh, you know, exists to end up as a tweet. You know, so yeah. it's, it's not that bad. As thing. Mallarmé said. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's time for you uh, to, and, and this is exactly why we have these lectures, and try not to have them compete with anything else, because uh, people like Elliot and Rebecca and Masgun and and Harry Aveling bring so important ideas to the festival, which is what we want uh, to underpin all that we do at the, uh, um, over the next, oh, what we've done over the last four days. I'd like to open it up now to all of you, if you'd like to ask a question. Please be as brief, just identify yourself, be as brief as possible, have your questions pointed, um, and we can, any questions? Oh, okay, there we are. I'm Kelly Faulkner from the Asia Literary Agency. Thank you so much, that was a really, Amazing lecture. I feel very privileged to be in the audience here. Uh, will the lecture be published? Um, I don't think so. I, I would know. love to uh, send it to other people who haven't had the, the pleasure oh. of being here in the audience. Um, I, I can send you a copy. But Yay. I, I, there's no, yeah, no planned on publishing. Kelly, actually, we were asked the same thing with Rebecca's lecture, and we asked Rebecca if it was possible uh, to, at some point, put it up on our website or Facebook and so that people could read it. Because yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and we'll do that. Thank you very much. Um, questions? Responses? Because it's quite provocative in, in many ways, uh, the, the intersection and, and the direction of influence and, um, and style and such. Uh, so does anybody have any questions? Yeah, please. More of, a, more of an ob sorry, my name's Jonathan Chapman. Uh, an observation, and you touched on it in your talk. What's, what's your view of the importance of literature, say, vis-a-vis -vis film as a vehicle for world communication? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, it's, you know, obviously, uh, you know, film is tremendously important. Literature is tremendously important. They don't, they don't, I don't, Sorry, could, should I just embellish what I was thinking? Um, yeah, which okay. is that film is more important than literature as world culture. Oh, is film more important? Well, because film has a larger audience, you mean. But just the dominance of visual culture today. And for instance, I watch much more international filmmaking than I read international literature. And I think I'm- Well, really you should read more. <laughs> well, my question. Maybe I should. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I think we movies. can come back and. My, my 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 point is, I mean, I went yeah. to see a film on Friday by a Colombian director. It's called um, Passage, no, Birds of Passage in English. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was about the Wuyu people yeah, in yeah, North, northern Colombia. I wouldn't get that. There, there aren't any trade routes. There aren't any roads which would give me Wuyu culture easily in the way that film well, yeah. does. I mean, yes and no. I mean, in that specific culture, um, I can't think offhand of, of things that, uh, uh, that are the equivalent, but then you, you know, there are a lot of great novels uh, um, about Amazonian cultures, uh, particularly Brazilian novels. So, I mean, it's, it's also possible to get it, you know, from, from other routes, you know. Obviously, film has a greater audience, uh, you know, 
Bruce Lee is more famous than Garcia Marquez, but so what? You know, I mean, it doesn't. Does that really matter? Does that really matter that much? Um, I never understood why. I mean, this is off the subject. I never understood why film studies is part of the literature departments of of many American universities. It seems like a completely separate discipline. But uh, that's another subject. More questions right. here. Yeah, I really like your idea of the uh, accidental nature of much translation um, because I think that's that's the way it's also it's often worked. But uh, there's also uh, large state-run translation bureaus that choose how to how to and what to translate. And so, how would you put those two uh, processes in dialogue with one another? I mean, in terms of how literatures uh, circulate. Yeah, I mean, uh, the interesting thing about those projects is that they tend to have no effect on literature itself, um, in this, in the sense that, in the sense that, for an example, um, right at the moment, uh, South Korea uh, gives a lot of money for translations of Korean literature, so there are presses that take advantage of the money in the United States and will publish 50 Korean novels. Now those novels become almost entirely invisible because they're just one of this crowd of novels. Whereas if a serious literary publisher, such as New Direction, um, publishes, a, uh, uh, publishes a Korean novel, that's going to have a lot more uh, um, uh, impact and you know, is more likely to, to be read in that sense than these huge, these huge national projects. And, uh, um, and the same is also true, I mean, I'll often hear, uh, you know, about some big anthology of, uh, you know, 75 Bulgarian poets published by an, by an academic press. And, uh, and that actually goes nowhere, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't exist as, as opposed to taking one Bulgarian poet published by a, a, a serious poetry press that will then have, uh, you know, will actually have, find readers and find, a, find an impact in that sense. Um, so. Uh, Sorry, just to follow up. I just, I mean, I'm thinking more of, let's say in China where you have a state uh, translation bureau that introduces, systematically introduces a particular kind of literature. And, and that is very, uh, right, I mean, I don't good, love yeah. influence as, an, uh, as, a, as a concept, but right. it is very impactful. I mean, people, mm -hmm. it does actually help to introduce, you know, certain uh, 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 literatures and so on. And so, for example, in China, when uh, during the high tide of Maoism and so on, there was a lot of translation that happened of third world authors and third world right. and so on that uh, led to maybe a false sense of, 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 of solidarity, but maybe also a true sense of solidarity or whatever. And then when that sh shifted, you know, the third world then became un invisible and it was as if China had never been in the world until it joined the so-called Western world. Whereas, of course, it had always been in the world, but it just a differently configured world. And so I'm just thinking of, of I mean, the, the, there were those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's also the, 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 the accidental nature of you know, discovery. Right, and I'm yeah. sorry, I misunderstood because yeah. I was sorry. thinking, yeah, I I was thinking in terms of the export of yeah. a national literature and not about the import of, of world literature. So, so, but no, I think a lot of those projects where, uh, where, you, where you have national projects of importing world literature, translating into your language, of course, I mean, it's affected by the bureaucracies, it's uh, affected by whatever the political correctness of the moment is, but then lots of good things get in. And so you have that, that situation in, in China post-1949 where you can have some pretty crazy, uh, um, non-social realist poets like Aragon and Eluard who, who can be published in China just because they're members of the Communist Party. So, uh, um, uh, so you know, those projects, I think, uh, you know, are, are often extremely valuable in a in kind of inadvertent way. You know? Thank you for um, very thoughtful and um, presentation that will stay with me for a bit longer. Um, so I'm actually interested in the idea that you say um, when you mention how literature can be easily used as a mechanism for nationalism, producing this kind of narrow nationalism that doesn't necessarily expand and include but constrict and um, exclude other people. So I just want, I kind of reflected on the, in the situations in, um, in Vietnam where we're, where it's increasingly difficult to kind of talk about identity. Um, it's, it's talk about a bit too much here in Malaysia, I think, just from my experience. But um, in, at least in publishing scene, like um, for example, indigenous writers, um, as you mentioned, um, the Cham people in, uh, in Vietnam who, a lot of the poets and the Cham people have been um, sort of co-opted into this association of Vietnamese writers. And in that process, they've become they become carved to kind of lose the voice, um, that they become like this um, kind of speaker for, for this nationalistic ide ideology and agenda of the nations. Or like Sino-Vietnamese writers who have um, Chinese ancestries. Now it's, it's kind of a taboo to talk about your Chinese ancestry in Vietnam given the relationship between our countries. Um, so like it's, it's just very, these tiny bits of pockets of contentious uh, discussions that we kind of have to have when it comes to literature, which put bearings on writers, translators, and publishers to like where to draw the line of being implicit and explicit. Should we publish it? Should we promote this? So I was just kind of thinking, uh, what, what would you think about literature as a clashing site in the region um, for these different ideas of nationalism, ethnicity, pride? where they come into play and what kind of like the roles for writers and translators and publishers, what kind of we, um, what are your thoughts on how we navigate it and how we bring about a more inclusive space for voices while not pandering into nationalistic, zealous nationalistic agenda? Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry if that's a long question. No, I just, I, I kind of don't know where to begin on that. The, uh, um, uh, you know, also because I don't really know about the, uh, you know, the specific situation in, in, in Vietnam in, in terms of, of those writers. I mean, those writers are being uh, uh, forced to, uh, I mean, from the Chang minority and so forth, are 
forced to kind of toe a political line or something like that. You know, that's that's what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, and are they writing in Chinese? Are they writing in Vietnamese or? Um, the language has an ancient script, um, right. but now has been Latinized. Um, but they are not allowed to write in that language, or even if they do, there's no readership, even within the community. So they have to write in Vietnamese. I see, I see. But I mean, it seems like part of the agenda is also uh, revitalizing the language. I mean, it should be revitalizing the language and stuff. And then, uh, I know Ho Chi Minh wrote in Chinese too, right? Wrote his yes, poetry in Chinese. other languages too. But he wrote in other languages. Too, yeah, so. I mean, he wrote in Vietnamese, but he also wrote in, in, in Chinese and stuff. Um, but, uh, uh, I mean, I have no, you know, facile answer to that, to that question. I mean, the, uh, uh, particularly because the, uh, the y you go through a period where, where various uh, minorities become uh, obviously subsumed into, into the majority, and then you have periods where the, where the minorities will, will uh, you know, rise out of the of the majority and start asserting starting asserting themselves. You know, and uh, so it seems kind of an inevitable future, right? That eventually the minority people will be starting to insist on speaking in their own voice and not in the voice of the majority. There's a question back there. Thank you. Oh, Ray Langer back. Um, uh, in, in Finland and, and other, probably other countries which are very small, uh, have small populations, there's an enormous amount of translation going on because they know that no one else will do it if they don't do it. So, the, so books are almost immediately translated uh, in, among the academic community, theory, uh, books of theory in particular. Um, but then there's Sami. And, and, and the, the, so I'm wondering if you've done a map of disappearing languages, which then converges with your extraordinary map of, uh, of other convergences of, of literature itself of, uh, or transfers. And what it, when, because languages are being lost every day now, uh, what, what impact does that have on the one hand in relation as a kind of entropic effect in, in, in uh, relation to the, the kinds of transfers that you're talking about. So Sami is highly translated now um, uh, among the Sami community, but uh, it's a very, very small uh, community, so it's uh, always in danger, and Finnish itself is always in danger. So, so these questions uh, come up. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, well, obviously the disappearance of languages is like the disappearance of habitat uh, uh, in, in, in the natural world, and you know, we are losing thousands and thousands of languages. I know that the, I mean, uh, um, um, as I understand it, though, among the Sami, which were known as Laplanders outside of, you know, often in the, their old name was Laplanders, um, that uh, there actually is a fairly strong uh, literary movement and Sami, I mean, I've heard of Sami poets and so forth, so that, uh, so that this seems to be, I mean, there seems to be a rather strong cultural identity working, working there, you know, within Finland, 
as 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 far as far as I as far as I understand it. And uh, you know, another example of world literature is that is that one of the most famous and, and cheesiest poems in American poetry, which is Longfellow's Hiawatha. I mean, the the rhythms are based on the Finnish epic, the Kalevala. You know, so it's like by the shores of Kichigumi. But anyway, so. Uh, it's yet it's yet another case, but I, I think this this Sami actually. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, you know support for that and support for a, a strong cultural cultural identity, even though they they are of course a very small minority. Yeah, I'm I'm using that as an example, but but um, there are many languages which are not being translated, right, and, and so I'm, what I'm wondering about is a convergence of two maps, uh, the 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 map of influences and transfers that you've been talking about and then the map of, of these disappearances and, and, and is anybody working on, on that kind of relationship between um, uh, Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of work on the disappearing languages of the world. I mean, we're, you know, we live in a world where a lot is disappearing. And so, uh, you know, the, the white rhinoceros of Sumatra just disappeared yesterday. So, um, you know, that's, and it's true of many thousands of languages that, yeah, that's completely right. We lost the last Sumatran rhino. It's yeah. now officially extinct in Malaysia. Uh, thank you, Elliot, for that wonderful uh, presentation. I was, uh, I, first of all, I like your title, uh, Trade Roots of the Words. Uh, and the, the thing is that now with a more interconnected, interdependent world, there is also an opportunity for the local to local uh, traits to happen uh, globally. Right. Uh, in, a, in a very interesting way. And that itself will create new uh, uh, spaces for, for creativity. But I was more uh, interested in your concept of hidden channels. And maybe you could explore that a little bit more. So are you talking about the in internal hidden channels uh, and the interaction also between that and the outer uh, reality? So in other words, are those the, some of the sources and spaces of creativity. Oh, yeah, well, but you're being more philosophical than I was. <laughs> no, I wasn't really talking about the sources of creativity in that sense. I, I, was, I was talking about, you know, literal channels of communication, uh, you know, with, within literature, um, and that, you know, much of it is, is completely accidental in, in, those, in, in that sense. Um, you know, obviously in terms of, Creativity and um, and and sources of inspiration and and uh, cross-cultural channels that inspire one. That also seems to be kind of accidental in the way of, of how one accidentally did, comes across something that then speaks to you and so forth. Um, so so uh, yeah. Then more questions. Thank you. I'm Harry Aveling. I want to put into dialogue, and not now, but in the future, plug my new book, Perceptions, mainly because it has chapters on interactions between the first world and the third world, on celebratory English and the work of Shannon Ahmad, on translating from languages that we don't know, and ethnopoetics, and a lot of local material in here that 
comes very much into sync with what Elliot has been talking about so wonderfully. Perceptions, UK Impress, published Thursday. <laughs> Harry, of course, gave the first lecture for the, for the festival. It's okay, I came to his lecture and promoted my book, so it's all right. <laughs> There's a question on that side, yeah? Can we give, okay. Uh, hi, I'm Jody. Thank you for your lecture, it was very enlightening. Um, I had a question about the margins and the centers that you mentioned that. About and what? About the margins and the center, the relationship. Mm. Uh, in the case of the oral literatures of indigenous communities, as you mentioned, what, what do you think it gains when it's translated into the written word and then subsequently brought to a sort of like a market of world literature? And what does it lose at the same time? Uh, can you repeat the question a little more yeah, slowly? Sure. Uh, so in the case of, uh, you mentioned the, the concept of mar margins and the center, right? Yeah. Um, in the case of uh, in oral literatures of indigenous communities, what do you think it gains or loses when it's translated into the written word, first of all, and then gets brought into a sort of a larger market of world literature? Well, you know, obviously it's quite different, but what I, what I, what I, I said that I think is, is, is very interesting is the idea of these, of people coming from oral traditions and then um, having studied uh, uh, modern literature and everything, bring, creating a kind of a hybrid form that is, um, that has you know deep roots in the oral and and uh, yet is also connected to what's been going on in in, in world literature at this at the same time. So basically, it's you know it's bringing in uh, you know new forms and new uh, 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 new ways of thinking about about writing um, you know into the uh, into uh, the, uh, the the dominant language. So. Um, you know, through translation, of course. So that's, you know, I, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but the, uh, you know, there's obviously, um, oops, five minutes. Um, I just want to thank you for bringing into view for me, and I think for some other people, what has been the elephant in the room of this conference, which is China, the, the great power of China. and. In Australia, we are very, very nervous about Chinese cultural influence as it is appearing through the Confucian in, uh, Institutes, through pressure on universities, through pressure on Chinese students. But what you have suggested is that that may not be the most important thing in terms of relationships between, say, Australian intellectuals and Chinese intellectuals, that in fact that monolithic kind of structure may not be the, any determining influence much at all. Much more important will be the channels, the interactions, the open places. So thank you very much for bringing that slightly more optimistic vision, to me at least. <laughs> Always cheerful. But thank the, um, but the, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, but I think you're confusing political and economic uh, influence with, with, with cultural influence. I mean, the, uh, Yeah, but I mean, the, you know, are, are they're not insisting that, uh, you know, every Australian read uh, Tang poetry, you know, in that sense, right? I mean... They are trying to influence what happens, they are influencing what happens in universities. In the so. sense of what? 
um, the, the Confucian Institutes. Well, I know who they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they they are influencing, for example, the subject matter at seminars, for example. Right, but political they put subjects, up the money. So. Yeah, but uh, political But cultural subjects. seminars. Yeah. You know, so it's at that sort of place. That, that's where it's happening. Okay. okay. Uh, there's a, the last question. I think we have time for one question. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for that lecture. I've just... Just building on a bit of Joe's uh, point here, I think um, I'm also a bit curious about this because it's what you seem to speak uh, about is the gain that can be had by other communities to say the translation of marginal voices being brought and shared. And I guess like one thing that Joe was trying to address and that struck me too is what do these cultures then have to gain? Um, there's uh, one of the uh, chapters in a book that uh, by James Scott that has really influenced me is uh, his chapter on orality and how many marginal communities use oral cultures as active forms of resistance against state control or hegemony. And the reason it's oral and not written and frozen in ink is because they can then change their genealogy and the narration of their history to the environment that they're living in and thereby they sustain themselves as a society and community. And so is there a risk in this that by trying to centralize voices in a status world that are on the margins, that you somehow freeze them and you, um, and you sort of codify how the rest of the world views them when they themselves may actually want to be not frozen and to continue flying and evolving over time? Yeah, that's a good question. But the, uh, I mean, it seems to me that all, all translation is, is, is a form of listening. And, uh, and when you have uh, the, the translation of work from oral communities, then the, uh, the larger nation starts to listen to them. So now whether this is, uh, which I think ultimately, uh, uh, is empowering in terms of in terms of the uh, the minority minority communities. So I mean, this is uh, you know um, it's the opposite of, of, of uh, what this man was saying about about you know Vietnam, where the Chan minority now is forced into into basically speaking uh, 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 in the language of, of the dominant society. Uh, and and so once you start listening to uh, to those communities, then I think that you know power flows into them, uh, you know, from the from the dominant dominant culture, you know, as has happened in Finland with the Sami people. Well, we've come to the end of the session, uh, and it was a rich one. I think uh, another round of applause for Elliot and uh, Elliot Weinberger. We will attempt to.